I'm Chris Reback. This is Chris Reback's Conversations. The first time he said it, or rather tweeted it, was in January 2018. In describing his business, television, and political accomplishments, President Trump typed, quote, I think that would qualify as not smart, but genius, and a very stable genius at that. He said it again at a NATO meeting that July, again the following July 2019, and again in September and October. It's become one of this era's defining lines of bravado and self-image that infuriates Trump detractors and fuels his supporters with equal amounts of pleasure. Now, it's also the title of one of this era's defining books, an exploration of Trump's first three years with deep context and new, extraordinary reporting. Washington Post reporters Philip Rucker and Carol Lennig have built on the work they do every day, and if you watch cable news, it seems every night, to deliver the number one New York Times bestseller, A Very Stable Genius, Donald J. Trump's Testing of America. When they're not writing bestsellers, appearing on television, or breaking news, Lennig and Rucker are also earning Pulitzer Prizes, five of them individually and part of teams. They brought that focus and detail to their book, an overwhelming series of events and backstories that delivers a powerful narrative that defines our times. I was glad to get to talk with both of them together. Before my conversation with Carol and Philip, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. Several more of you did it over the last weeks. Thank you. You know the parallel ask, though. If you don't like the conversations, well, thanks for still listening, but please just forget that whole rate and review thing. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Carol Lennig and Philip Rucker. Carol, Philip, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having us. Yeah, glad to be here. So I feel like I should start with the obvious question after you have spent three plus years reporting on and analyzing the facts and writing the book you titled A Very Stable Genius. So is he? Uh, we get that question quite a bit, as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, what, what we tried to do in our reporting, because we're serious journalists, is talk to as many people who'd experienced Donald Trump's decision making and been in the room when he made those choices and how he operates, what motivates him, what makes him tick. And many of them in more than, you know, in interviews with more than 200 sources, many of those individuals are concerned that he doesn't uh, act in a stable or genius way. There are elements, however, of the president that are genius. For example, his, his mastery of his megaphone, his ability to connect with voters in an electric way that we haven't seen before either. But as, as I say, many um, individuals who work for the president or have worked for him tell us they're very concerned about the danger he sometimes poses mm. to the democracy and to our norms and to sensitive national security decisions. And we'll talk about the Constitution and democracy. And obviously, we're having this conversation two days before what's supposed to be the Senate vote, the acquittal vote, I guess. But one hesitates to predict anything. So I guess I should just say the scheduled <laughs> acquittal vote. We'll, we'll see what actually happens. And I also want to talk to you in a moment about one of the areas 
that I do find very interesting is handling of power and his understanding of power. And, and, and I'll get to that in a moment. But I want to start with the sense I got from reading your book, which is that it's overwhelming. I mean, every day there's some new event or moment or crisis or absurdity, most of which, um, many of which I'd, I'd forgotten about. I mean, I'd, I'd forgotten about Trump's saying that the U.S. was sending the military to the Mexican border one hour before Tillerson and John Kelly were set to meet with Mexican leaders in Mexico City. I actually wasn't aware of the story of Trump's trying to read the Constitution for Nancy Pelosi's filmmaker daughter. You'll have to tell me if that was uh, originally, you know, if, if you brought that to light for the first time. Jeff Sessions' recusal and all the drama around that, you know, so many things, even before Robert Mueller really actively came onto the scene. I was overwhelmed by the relentlessness. Is that the feeling you got? And is that part of what you wanted to convey in the narrative? Absolutely. And by the way, I love that you pulled out that um, Alexandra Pelosi constitution scene, because that was indeed new uh, in the book. But this overwhelming, uh, you know, onslaught of crises and scandals and uh, news headlines hour by hour, day by day, that's why we decided to to do this book. We've been covering this president for three years, and it's been a dizzying experience. Mm. And Carol and I just wanted to hit the pause button and, and really look back and understand what really happened behind the scenes. Why did the president do what he did? What was he telling people at the time? And importantly, what were the consequences as they reverberated around the country? And, you know, a very stable genius is that historical uh, narrative of these three incredible years. And, you know, it might give you heartburn to relive all of it. Uh, but we think there's there's a public service value to that as well, because it really helps uh, everybody understand what's really gone on. Yeah, there is something about stringing it all together into a narrative. And Carol, I take your point from the the start that, that you, you know, you two are serious journalists and that the main part of your goal, you correct me if I'm characterizing this wrong, was to report on what you were reporting and on the 200 plus interviews and um, to leave most of the conclusions to the folks whom you interview and whom you quote or, or characterize their quotes. But by stringing that all together and creating that narrative, give a sense of the history of the first three years. Um, I want to talk about power. I'm really interested in that and in Donald Trump's understanding and use of power. I'm in the uh, overflowing camp of huge Robert Caro fans. I've read every biography <laughs> word he's written, and I'm holding my breath for LBJ Volume 5. Um, if you can maybe give Caro a call and ask him you know, when he's going to deliver it. <laughs> We're all waiting for that one. We're all waiting. I have started to believe, regardless of how one feels about him, that Trump absolutely understands and uses power, generates leverage out of thin air, knows how instinctively to use it like perhaps no one we've ever seen. Am I overstating it? As you connected this narrative, how did you think about Trump and power? I uh, hadn't thought about it in that way and comparing him um, to Caro's description of LBJ, but I have thought a lot about power. And the comparison is fascinating because you know, LBJ was, was also a yeller and a cursor and a tough hombre. Yeah, but yeah. President Trump has more of a blunt instrument in some respects when he uses his, his baton of power. Uh, it's his Twitter megaphone. It's his ability 
to realize who he needs to go after and how he has to characterize his enemies, his critics, or people who even just pop up their head uh, out from underneath the sand and explain truth or fact. Um, he did that with really dramatic and scarring effect to many members of his cabinet. Yeah. And one thing Phil and I learn in, in the reporting for the book and share with readers are all the ways in which he abused those people who tried to, to block or counter him that worked for him. You know, here were people who signed up to try to deliver on his agenda or at least deliver on a conservative agenda, but he was literally mocking them to their face as he did with a McMaster, his national security advisor, who he would mimic as soon as he walked into the room to give him his national security briefing. Or Kirsten Nielsen, his, his secretary for Homeland Security, who he would um, berate and, and, and bully over the phone, calling her early in the morning, even before she woke up, yeah, and late London, at night, yeah, telling you... her you know, what she should do that Lou Dobbs just suggested about shutting down the border. She would try to offer to him that some of Lou Dobbs' ideas were illegal or they were already doing them, Mr. President. The way in which the president um, made Jeff Sessions feel, Phil and I uh, reveal new details about scenes that have been written about before in our paper, but the way in which he dresses down Jeff Sessions when he learns that a special counsel has been appointed is so visceral that the vice president excuses other people from the room because he honestly doesn't want them to witness this, according to the other people there. And, and a chief of staff to, to Sessions leaves the room and they can still hear the president yelling through the door. Yeah, that scene where where he left the uh, the chief of staff and uh, McGann, I think, also left with him. And in that scene, did Sessions really almost cry? That that's I mean, that was my reading of what you wrote. I think you, you literally wrote that his eyes welled up or or something mm -hmm. like that, and he fought or fought to hold it back. That I hadn't read before. Another detail from your reporting that I hadn't seen before. Did Sessions yeah. almost cry? He did almost cry. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's difficult for us to say that he actually cried, you know, tears flowing down his cheek, for example. But his eyes welled up. He got emotional. His voice was halting. He could barely get the words out as he stood in front of the Resolute desk talking to the president. Mm. And so, you know, it was a it was a scarring moment for the attorney general, but also for all the other people who work uh, in the West Wing and who witnessed this or who heard the screaming from down the hallway. Uh, it, you know, it was one of these rages that President Trump goes into and uh, people who've worked with him described him as his face getting white and him becoming a very physical presence as he yells at people. And he certainly acted that way uh, in front of Jeff Sessions on that day, but also on other days. He had a, a rather acrimonious relationship with the Attorney General, as we well know. Philip, did did you come away with a sense of uh, Trump's use of power, his ability to generate leverage um, in, in anything, thinking about how, how he uses it and maybe with LBJ or with other great users yeah. of power in, in your mind? Yeah, his use of power um, is very different from LBJ's in part because Trump, you know, relatively speaking, is quite ignorant about the, the way the government works and about especially the legislative process at the Capitol. Remember, LBJ was a, a high-ranking senator Senate. for many yeah. years, yeah. and Trump has never served in politics. But Trump, uh, the way Trump exercised his power was through, uh, through his popularity with his conservative base. And 
the key to his power in Washington these three years has has largely, and I would say almost exclusively, been uh, the power that he holds over the Republican base. Because his approval rating among Republicans is 80 to 90 percent, it means that that no Republican lawmaker can cross him or challenge him or stand up to him or vote no on one of his proposals. And that's how he's been able to muscle through uh, so much of what he wants done and why he's been able to skirt accountability uh, when he does wrong, such as in the Ukraine episode. That makes me think of one of the items that you write really early in the book. You write, there are no perfect heroes in our book. And it made me think, I was kind of keeping that in mind as I was reading the following 400 pages. Isn't that the problem? And I mean problem with part of where where we are right now as a society. Doesn't every story need a hero? Absolutely. I mean, in Hollywood, we definitely want one. But, you know, again, our role here as journalists is to show you people as they really are. You know, for example, we've gotten a lot of feedback from people who were shocked at how Secretary of State Rex Tillerson was one of the lone individuals who could stand up to Donald Trump and tell him what was what. Um, Of course, we also know that his chief of staff, John Kelly, did that from time to time, uh, at least in private. But in public, Rex Tillerson took the, the, the pretty bold step of telling the president he was wrong in front of all of his flag officers and generals and joint chiefs and his Secretary of Defense in July 2017 in another scalding moment that we thought we knew until we went digging a little deeper. It's the scene where the president's uh, senior advisors are trying to give him a lesson, essentially, a quickie lesson in why we need troops and bases and trade deals and why these elements keep us safe at night, that they are valuable to America. The president had been railing against this. And so Mattis and Tillerson and his national economic advisor, Gary Cohn, arranged for him to come to a sacred space at the Pentagon, the tank, and meet with him and explain these things to him. But he instead is furious and fuming and calls them dopes and babies, something we didn't know until we began uh, digging into this and, and getting some people to break their silence. He tells everyone in the room something that is so scalding that they promise each other they won't repeat it. Luckily, some of them told us. The president bellows at them, I wouldn't go to war with you people. It was, it's worse than a curse word in their view. But Rex Tillerson stands up and says, you know, Mr. President, you're wrong. Everything you're saying is wrong. He does that because he ultimately concludes, according to our sources, that none of the flag officers are able, physically able, to uh, counter or contradict their commander-in-chief in this public setting. So many people thought Rex Tillerson was, came out as a hero in our book. But of course, we all know it's much more complicated than that. Yeah. There are people at the State Department who are still fuming about Rex Tillerson's tenure there and feel that he was unavailable to them. Uh, but now we know from our reporting that Rex Tillerson had a lot more on his plate in dealing what, with what we call sort of his first boss. You know, that is so well characterized. And you're right that the impression one gets of Tillerson from a range of reporting and and books is ups and downs. And your characterization of him in that meeting in the tank, and there have been other there has been other reporting on that, but you offer 
absolutely new details and including Tillerson's staring, I guess, at Mattis, almost imploring him, you know, trying to implore him through mental telepathy was, was that was kind of how I was reading what you wrote to please say something when he realized that um, Mattis was just genetically I think that's your your words, a Marine, and wasn't going to say something to the commander-in-chief in that environment or at that time. Tillerson said what he said. Um, and yet, yes, the other times and other things we've read and heard about Tillerson raise serious questions. Um, same with Kirsten Nielsen. Terrible things that, you know, that's my characterization, that we have read about children in cages and about, you know, her role in, in that or some of that. And then on the other hand, you talked about it earlier, the scene of her in London going to, you know, a group of seven meeting and getting harangued and, and humiliated, humiliated, again, my interpretation of what you wrote, and, and kind of forced into flying back. There are no heroes, and there are just a lot of ups and downs. Everyone just has ups and downs. I think that's right. And, you know, through these three years, a lot of people who are critics of the Trump presidency held up. Robert Mueller as as the antagonist, mm. as the or the protagonist rather, as the hero, and our reporting shows that even Mueller had flaws and and mishandled, uh, you know, key aspects of the investigation. You know, at the end, we document in a very stable genius how he uh, got outfoxed by Bill Barr, the Attorney General, and was unable to control the public narrative of his investigation, such that Trump uh, was able to proclaim. A victory and vindication and uh, exoneration, which of course is not what the investigation found, but uh, Mueller was not uh, operating with the same level of modern sophistication uh, as Barr and and the Trump forces. And so even Mueller uh, is not a hero in this story. Can I push you just slightly on that, Philip, because you're yeah. reporting in the way that you write it, it goes even, I think, a little bit farther and you guys go as close to just about any of the reporting I've read to give a sense that there might be something off around Mueller at that time of the, in that meeting with Barr. You talk about um, the way Barr and other colleagues noticed his hands shaking, um, his voice maybe unsteady. Again, that yeah. might not be your word, but something like that you wrote, and that he handed off the narrative of the meeting very quickly. And there was a phrase you guys used to describe that, like it was surprising or not usual for, for him to do that. You didn't go so far. You didn't state that he, that there was an issue, but you, I, my reading was you hinted at it. Yeah. I mean, Carol and I are, are not credentialed to diagnose Bob Mueller or, or state whether there's yeah. any sort of uh, medical issue there. But we do know from our reporting in, in that meeting, which was attended by Barr and a number of uh, top Justice Department officials, as well as the top deputies on the special counsel team, that the people who witnessed Mueller that day felt he was not the Bob Mueller that they knew and revered through so many years. Uh, Mueller, the platoon leader in Vietnam, the you know decorated FBI director, the, the fighter of terrorism, around the world, uh, he had he had lost a step in the judgment of those who were working with him during this investigation, and it concerned people. But another thing that concerned people inside the special counsel uh, investigation was that, that Mueller didn't uh, authorize a subpoena of Trump and didn't state more clearly, uh, or at least as clearly as some of his colleagues would have liked, 
the ways in which Trump uh, did wrong in trying to obstruct justice in the Russia probe, and, and therefore the, the report and, and the public takeaway from that investigation was not as conclusive uh, as some of the investigators believed it should have been. Barr's surprise and Barr's team's surprise around some of those elements kind of um, mirroring a lot of the surprise that we then heard just in the regular commentaries after the Mueller report came out. That was also interesting to read. Among the things that the book does, the combination of these incredible details and scenes that, as we've discussed, when tied together, reveal something for us all to, to, to consider. Another one of the scenes, page 27, you write that Bannon, because this ties to the moment we're in right now, Um, You write that Bannon warned folks that Pelosi was going to get them. He called her a total assassin, um, and that was uh, on the first Monday night of his presidency. Could you tell that story, if you would? Because ultimately, I want to see if it connects to current events. I mean, my questions ultimately are, after you tell the story, how prepared were they that she would call for an impeachment inquiry. I mean, if, if Bannon knew on January 23rd of 2017 that Pelosi was an assassin, had Trump relaxed on that, or did he always think it was coming? You know, I like that scene, too, and I think one ele- there are two really interesting elements of it. Um, one is, when they sit down to meet, it is, it is Pelosi who says to the president, you know, you're just wrong about this idea that you that there are fake votes. The president uh, argues that he really won by an overwhelming margin the popular vote and says that he would have won it rather technically were it not for all this fraudulent voting in various places by Democrats, uh, alleged Democrats. And she says, you're just wrong. And when she's countering him, Bannon is essentially giving privately his highest compliment. When he says she's an assassin, he's talking about what a tough uh, ombre slash broad she is. And it's it's a tactical, um, you know, sort of sobriquet from his point of view. It does also, the second point you make is so smart, it does... I feel foreshadow where we are now. Much of the reporting we did for a a very stable genius, we feel foreshadows where we are now. A presidency increasingly enabled and a president who increasingly is rejecting the people around him who try to hem him in and and surrounded more and more by people who try to get him, try try to deliver a yes to him as we are in the Ukraine episode, he's surrounded by not John Kelly, a chief of staff who would say, Mr. President, we're not doing that, but now a new chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, who is saying to President Trump, okay, you want to block the aid to Ukraine? Okay, we can do that, despite the fact that his office is being copied on emails and warnings from the Government Accountability Office that blocking this aid to Ukraine by the White House is illegal. It is fascinating to me about Pelosi because she has stayed on her track. You know, she didn't move to impeach after the Mueller investigation because there was this feeling of fizzling out after the scene that Phil describes when Mueller doesn't seem that strong. He isn't really directly accusing the president of criminal activity, even though the report finds that in four cases uh, there was substantial evidence of criminal obstruction. And so she doesn't choose to go that route. But with the Ukraine call and with a number of people coming out and saying that the president 
had crossed a, a sacred line, she does move in this direction. And in a forceful, rapid, no bones about it uh, fashion that, that Bannon foresaw. He sure did. And, and having that narrative, having that scene at the beginning of your book, near the beginning, does really add a, a sense of foreshadowing. I, I want to close. I have two questions to close with. One, uh, serious, and, and then the second, um, just a blanket attempt to try to uh, embarrass you both um, in, in a fun way, of course. First, on a, on a more serious note, it's not an easy thing to think about. I'm wondering how you feel about your work and what you do following the Senate trial, but in particular after the acceptance uh, or, or the understanding of what seems to be coming known as the Dershowitz standard, that the president can do whatever he wants to get reelected as long as he feels it's in the public interest. You both have dedicated your careers to holding truth to power. And I'm sure you do this for many reasons, including the one on your paper's nameplate, that democracy dies in darkness. And I know that you are reporters, Carol, as you noted at the top, not advocates, but every reporter wants their work to have impact, whether Flint water or, as your book advertises, never before reported details of Trump's shocking behavior and new evidence of the administration's dysfunction. Now that it appears that evidence that President Trump used public policy tools to advance his personal political goals, now that that seems to be in the process of being accepted and in some cases acknowledged, but ultimately rejected, how do you think still about what you do, about the reporting, about the revealing of of facts, of scenes, of opening our eyes, the reader's eyes to what is happening in government? Does it get make you more motivated, less motivated? How does it affect your sense of purpose? Those are just some of the things I was wondering about when thinking about the book and what you do and where we are as this trial comes appears to come to an end. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And um, the, the truth is, I don't think the outcome of this trial or, or the outcome of any decision that our government's leaders make uh, has an impact on how we view our jobs and how we go about doing our jobs. Um, you know, we're we're journalists and what we have set to do with a very stable genius, but also what we do every day with our work at the Washington Post is to find uh, the truth, to find new pieces of information, new facts, to bring them to light, uh, to show the public what is really happening. And, um, you know, to the extent that we can have impact insofar as, you know, millions of people around the country have a better understanding of, of what their leaders are doing and our leaders are being held accountable to the public, uh, then that's the impact we look for. And, you know, Carol and I are really gratified that this book has been a bestseller, but not only in liberal enclaves or on the coasts of blue states, but it's a bestseller in Arizona and Texas and Oklahoma mm. and Ohio and the Carolinas, and it's flying off the shelves in Georgia and all sorts of red states. And that's really gratifying to us because it means that Americans of all stripes uh, and all partisan beliefs are finding our contributions and our reporting valuable. And, you know, we don't advocate for any particular outcome in the Senate trial. And, and you know, regardless of how the senators vote on Wednesday, we're going to get up on Thursday and continue to do our jobs uh, reporting at the Washington Post. And that segues, if I can, to my, my embarrassing question, which relates to what you just said, Philip. Are we in some way perhaps in a new era of 
superhero reporting duos. They seem to be all the rage. I mean, if the originals, of course, were Woodward and Bernstein or maybe uh, Hunt Brinkley. But, you know, today we've got you, we've got from the New York Times, Michael Schmidt, Maggie Haberman, Julie Hirschfeld Davis, and Michael Scheer. There are a whole bunch of others. Is this a new superhero reporting duos era and and if it is is it like the rolling stones and the beatles is there is there a a competition (laughs) or do you all just kind of admire each other's work and and say well done you know i think phil and i both um we're honored that people uh reviewers think that we're in that pantheon of of dynamic duos i wouldn't call (laughs) us superheroes but i you know, we've had people say we're um, following the footsteps of Woodward and Bernstein and nothing could make us more proud. I also would say that, um, you know, neither of us feels we could do this work alone. It is uh, it is a mountain of material. Just as dizzying as the news has been, this is a mountain of material to deal with. And you'll notice in the pages of the Washington Post that lots of times there are multiple names on bylines. Yes. They're moving so much faster. We're, we're bringing you information at 7 o'clock at night about what happened at 5.30. And people um, need to team up. But in this work, I'm, I'm indebted to Phil. I feel that it's been a great partnership and we brought to bear the best we possibly could uh, to readers and to let them see what it's really like in that room where the president is making decisions, barking at people, or where he's dressing them down or pumping them up. We wanted to take you there, and I'm proud that we did. You absolutely did, and that's one of the great services that the book provides. I I think you did uh, sell things short, though, there, Carol, because you not only report at 7 p.m. on what happened at 5.30, but you then tell us about it at 11 p.m. on Brian Williams, and then you get your (laughs) rear ends into the studio early the next morning for Morning Joe. So there's, you know, another 18 hours of work that you put in that that you left out. Well, we do do appreciate the television um, uh, networks that want us to come on because they they sound out our work to a larger audience and we want more people to hear it and to come to the Washington Post for it as well. And and doing your program is really an honor for us as well. Well, thank you both. Thank you for your time and uh, thank you for the book and the reporting. It, uh, it was all a great read and really helpful. Thank you for the great conversation. That was my conversation with Carol Lennig and Philip Rucker. My thanks to Carol and Philip for the conversation and you for listening. Quick reminders, if you liked this conversation, please give it the five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And don't forget to sign up for my newsletter at chrisreback.com. That's all for today. I'll talk with you soon.